This is Vanguard of Hollywood's Week Before Christmas special. I'm Shannon Allen. Let's start with the answer to yesterday's trivia question. The question was, what Christmas film about hidden identity and cooking starred an actor who was a happily married father of two before becoming one of Warner Brothers' most popular stars of the 1940s? The answer is 1945's Christmas in Connecticut, and the actor is the underrated Dennis Morgan. Dennis worked in Hollywood for nearly five years before getting his big break in 1940s Kitty Foyle. A Wisconsin native, Dennis married his high school sweetheart, Lillian Vetter, in 1933 after graduating from Carroll College. With his beautiful tenor voice, Dennis found work at a Milwaukee radio station, appeared in light operas, and joined Vernon Buck's orchestra at the Palmer House in Chicago for seven months. His son Stanley and daughter Kristen were born in 1934 and 1937, respectively. Between their births, Hollywood came calling. After signing with MGM in 1935, Dennis and his budget-conscious family drove out to Hollywood in an old Packard. A third child, Dennis's son James, was born in 1943. Five years after arriving in Hollywood, Dennis finally achieved the recognition he deserved in Kitty Foyle. As columnist Sidney Skolsky wrote, quote, After he was seen in Kitty Foyle, the fans took care of the rest. His fan mail at the studio is larger than even that of Errol Flynn. The fans howl for him. He's six feet two inches tall, weighs 175 pounds, has blue eyes and brown curly hair, and a smile that sets him with the girls. Unquote. He may have been Hollywood's new heartthrob, but Dennis Morgan was a family man. As Dennis related in an interview, quote, It's not the easiest thing in the world to be a success in Hollywood and still be the ordinary husband and father. Unquote. But succeed he did. Despite the fame and riches of Hollywood, Dennis Morgan was a faithful husband and devoted father. The next time you watch Christmas in Connecticut, look for Dennis's genuine skill with the various babies in the movie. When Dennis holds a baby, changes a diaper, or takes over the bath time routine from Barbara Stanwyck's struggling Elizabeth Lane, it's clear this isn't just an actor pretending. As a father, Dennis Morgan had real-life experience, and he knew what he was doing. The first seven listeners to answer the question correctly were... Jane Allen, Ray Carlson, Jessica Ramirez, Lyle White, Maria Cisneros, that's three days in a row, Maria, well done, Sarah Rogers, and Linda Kretschmer. Thanks for submitting your answers, and be sure to check your email today for a free copy of my ebook, The Classic Hollywood Cleanse. Today's trivia question is Which actor was meant for the Danny Kay role in White Christmas? but had to drop out after contracting Q disease. Again, the question is, which actor was meant for the Danny Kay role in White Christmas, but had to drop out after contracting Q disease? Be sure to submit your answer at vanguardofhollywood.com and select podcast from my site menu, then click the trivia question button. The first seven listeners to answer correctly will receive honorable mention in tomorrow's podcast episode 
and all who answer correctly will receive a free copy of my ebook, The Classic Hollywood Cleanse. Now I'm excited to share one of my favorite Christmas stories, O. Henry's The Gift of the Magi. O. Henry was an American writer whose short stories first captured the attention of readers in the late 1800s and early 1900s. O. Henry's life was as fascinating as the stories he wrote. In 1896, he fled the United States for Honduras to avoid jail time for a wrongful embezzlement charge. O. Henry then lived in Honduras for six months, where he became friends with train robber Al Jennings. When he received news that his beloved wife was dying of tuberculosis, O. Henry came home to Austin, Texas, and was promptly sentenced to five years jail time. He was released after three years in 1901 for good behavior. Of the over 381 stories O. Henry wrote, The Gift of the Magi remains one of the best loved. Allegedly written over drinks at O. Henry's favorite pub, the current-day Pete's Tavern in Gramercy Park, the heroine of this classic Christmas tale was supposedly inspired by O. Henry's beloved first wife. I first became familiar with The Gift of the Magi when, as a kid, I begged my dad to record O. Henry's Full House, which was playing on AMC. The 1952 film brought five of O. Henry's stories to the screen. I wanted to watch the film because Marilyn Monroe had a bit role in one of the stories. But it was The Gift of the Magi, brought to life by Farley Granger and Jean Crane, that struck me. The story of a young married couple just barely getting by, yet choosing to sacrifice their most prized possessions for one another, still fills me with the spirit of Christmas. At times, O. Henry's words and language in his stories can be difficult to grasp, but his unique style and the very soul of the story are lost in versions of The Gift of the Magi that attempt to update O. Henry's English to words and phrasing more familiar to readers today. For this reason, I'm reciting O'Henry's original work just as he wrote it. Thanks for joining me for O'Henry's The Gift of the Magi. $1.87. That was all. And 60 cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealings implied. Three times Della counted it, $1.87, and the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it, which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home a furnished flat at $8 per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. In the vestibule below was a letterbox into which no letter would go and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung off to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to $20, the letters of Dillingham looked blurred, 
as though they were seriously thinking of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present. She'd been saving every penny she could for months with this result. $20 a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she'd calculated. They always are. Only $1.87 to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she'd spent planning for something nice for him, something fine and rare and sterling, something just a little bit nearer to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you've seen a pier glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly, she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brightly, but her face had lost its color within 20 seconds. Rapidly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. There were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window someday to dry, just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up high in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Saffroni, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Saffroni. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Take your hat off and let's have a side of the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. And the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor, she was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she'd turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. 
It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value. The description applied to both. $21 they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the 87 cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way to a little prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lined curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror, long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? What could I do with a dollar and 87 cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his step on the stairway down on the first flight and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit for saying little silent prayers about the simplest everyday things and now she whispered, please God, Make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only 22 and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat and he was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door as immovable as a setter at the scent of a quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della and there was an expression in them that she couldn't read and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she'd been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, she cried, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold it because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair? Asked Jim laboriously, as if he hadn't arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well? I'm still me without my hair. Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone? he said, with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone. It's Christmas Eve, Jim. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with sudden serious sweetness, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For 10 seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. $8 a week or a million a year, what's the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. 
The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going for a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the Lord of the Flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful, vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers, but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried. Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, he said, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at the present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now, suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the wisest. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. Thanks for listening. For delicious recipes and all things classic Hollywood, visit my website, vanguardofhollywood.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from.